Today I've been requested to talk on right and well-spoken speech. I guess all of you should know what right speech is according to the Noble Eightfold Path. Who doesn't know? Hands up. Are you sure or not? <laughs> if you don't know and you don't put up your hands, that's not right speech. <laughs> okay, this is very obvious. Right speech according to the Noble Eightfold Path means abstention from false speech, from divisive speech, harsh speech and frivolous speech. It seems that this is a, quite a negative way of putting it because it doesn't tell you what you should do instead of just abstention. After you abstain, what do you do? However, because it was phrased in a negative way, it's more encompassing. If you're not having false speech, that means you're doing other things which are not false speech, or none of these, but need not necessarily be the direct opposite. So the opposite of false speech is truthful speech. The opposite of divisive speech is harmonious speech. And the opposite of harsh speech is polite speech. And the opposite of frivolous speech is meaningful speech. These are not really explained in the expositions on the Noble Path, but they are found elsewhere. So we could sort of copy and paste here to give you an idea of the positive side of right speech not just a negative side of abstaining from these things, but also to do the opposite. However, while this may be true on the conventional worldly level, from the super mundane level, as it is explained in Mahajatarisika Sutta in the Majjhimanikaya, it seems that it's not really possible to do that when you're having a super mundane experience. It seems that when one is awakened, all the eight path factors are there. So the moment that you are awakened, you are not speaking any truth, you are not speaking harmonious speech, you are also not being polite or saying anything to anyone, neither are you engaging in frivolous speech or saying anything. You're just listening or you're meditating and you get enlightened. So in the Mahajatarisaka Sutta, it says that this abstention from these four things has already happened earlier on. And it's just a continuation. Although you are not actively abstaining from these four types of wrong speech, the mind is in that mode. It is neither engaging in any of these types of wrong speech, or is it engaging in any type of right speech? Well, you can say he's engaging in right speech in the sense that he's abstaining from these things. However, when you come back to the worldly point of view, 
which I think is more relevant to all of us here. This doesn't seem to be quite complete in the sense of when do we say the truth and not falsehood, or do we see the truth all the time, and how to actually abstain from frivolous talk. I suppose if you really want to walk the noble path, as a layperson, it's not really very easy because most of the times you are engaged in non-meaningful talk. Yeah, you gossip, you go to the coffee shop, and you talk about this and that, things which are not really related to awakening, to liberation, to the practice of the noble path. So this is a very high standard. Right speech is something that is connected to the noble path that will lead to liberation or awakening. So perhaps it's more relevant for us to talk about well-spoken speech, more relevant and more useful in our daily living. Now, well-spoken speech, when I looked up the word well-spoken speech, is called subhasita. Su is well, basita is spoken. And I found that there were two references there. One is in the Sutta Nibhata, and it's called Subhasita Sutta, the discourse on well-spoken speech. And the Buddha said, Monks, speech and doubt with four characteristics is well-spoken, not poorly spoken, faultless and not to be faulted by the wise. Which four? Here, a monk says only what is well-spoken, not what is poorly spoken. Only what is just, not what is unjust. Only what is endearing, not what is unendearing. Only what is true, not what is false. Speech and doubt with these four characteristics is well-spoken, not poorly spoken faultless and not to be faulted by the wise. So there are actually four factors there. How many can you remember? (laughs) Well, to help you remember, as usual, I'm coming up with an acronym. (laughs) The acronym is We Rent. You rent a car, you rent a house, you rent an apartment. (laughs) So the acronym is We Rent. And We here stands for well-spoken. That's the first factor. Second, R stands for righteous or just. And N here stands for endearing. And finally, T stands for truthful. So well-spoken speech that is faultless and not to be faulted by the wise was defined by the Buddha in this sutta as speech that consists of these four characteristics. But you can see that there's an overlap because he didn't define what is well-spoken. He used well-spoken to define what is well-spoken. So what is well-spoken? <laughs> it's just like the exposition for right livelihood in the noble path. It doesn't seem to be very helpful because he says 
What is right livelihood? Here, a disciple of the noble one abstains from wrong livelihood and engages in right livelihood. Full stop. <laughs> oh, how helpful is that definition? <laughs> so here is the same. He talks about well-spoken speech and then he uses well-spoken speech as one of the characteristics. <laughs> so we have to look somewhere else to get more clarification. That's the beauty of knowing the Pali language because now it's all digitalized. So very easy, you know where the word is, you just look it up and it'll tell you where you can find it everywhere in the Tipitaka. Before we talk more about well-spoken speech in another sutta, here, what is the meaning of righteous? The Pali word is Dhamma. He speaks what is Dhamma, not what is Adhamma. When he says he speaks what is Dhamma, it doesn't mean that he's talking about the teachings of the Buddha. The word Dhamma is used in a wider sense, in a sense of it's something according to the law, whether it's a law of morality or the law of nature. But in this case, it probably refers to something which is just and righteous. But then again, one must also be very careful because some people tend to be very righteous, self-righteous, and they go around being very dominating. I don't think that the Buddha was referring to this sort of domineering righteousness. <laughs> I guess he means that you're not saying something that is unjust. You're saying something which is just. Righteous in that sense, morally right. And enduring here, the word used is piya. Piya means love. And the word piya is also used as an adjective to mean enduring that people like, people love. Lovable words, lovable speech. And finally, which is truthful, because it's part of the five precepts to abstain from telling what is false. So definitely has to be truthful. But it doesn't mean that you speak the truth all the time. I will get back to that later. Now, there is another sutta in the Anguttara Nikaya called the Waja Sutta, AN 5.198. And in this sutta, the Buddha also said that if a speech that is endowed with these five qualities is called well-spoken speech. Here at least we have a definition, but there's some overlap also. So here again, we give you an acronym. The acronym is BAT and TIP ME. BAT and TIP ME, like you tip a waitress. You place a bat and you tip me. So the first one is we rent, and the second one is BAT and TIP ME. So what does BE stand for? BE stands for beneficial. What is beneficial? T here is the same as the first one. It stands for what is truthful. Tip, TI here stands for what is timely. P stands for what is polite. And finally, ME stands for with meta. 
So you can see here that there's some overlap because truthfulness is in both suttas. And I suppose you could say that when there is metta and politeness, then the words should also be endearing. The only thing that is missing in the Vajra Sutta is righteousness. There's nothing mentioned of being about righteousness, but it has something very important there. It's called timely. Before we talk about timely, let me give you a bit of elaboration on how you can practice this. This is a very important criteria for you to decide on whether you want to say something or not. Well, you could combine these two suttas and make that something to work towards. In order to be able to decide whether you want to say something or not according to this criteria, you need to have some prerequisites. And what is that? That is mindfulness. What is mindfulness? Mindfulness is the faculty of the mind that is able to look back at past events and things of the past, whether it's intermediate past or distant past or even immediate past. So if you don't have enough mindfulness, you've not trained your mind to look back at what's happening in your mind, you will not be able to follow this criteria. Correct? Because all our actions, whether mental actions, whether verbal or physical actions, are preceded by intentions, are preceded by an initial thought, an initial intention. You want to think something, you want to say something, you want to do something. Most people are not aware of this. Let me try an experiment with you here. You're sitting right now in whatever posture you are, freeze. Don't make yourself comfortable. Freeze in whatever posture you are in now. And don't move. Keep absolutely still. Some people are really looking up, looking here and there, scratching here and there. These are automatic habitual reactions which you don't even know how to catch. People are not aware. Sometimes when I teach meditation, I ask them to sit absolutely still. And I see still people taking up their hands to adjust their hair, the specs. And sometimes just a slight discomfort, you will take up the hands to just rub the skin without even noticing it. So if you want to be able to follow or make use of this criteria that was recommended by the Buddha for well-spoken speech, the first thing you need to do is to train a mind to be mindful. Look back at what's happening to the mind. If you're not well-trained, like most ordinary people, 
you will think what you want to think, you want to say what you want to say, you do what you want to do, and then you regret later. Correct? So, it's important to practice mindfulness, to train ourselves to come back, to watch what the mind is doing. And it's a very simple mantra for that. All you need to do is ask yourself, what's the mind doing? What's the mind doing? Keep on asking yourself, what's the mind doing? Check your mind state, check your thoughts. But it's not so easy because people tend to get lost in their thoughts. So one way of facilitating your mind to be able to catch your thoughts without getting lost in them is to try to come back to your senses. For example, now you are sitting there listening to me. Can you be aware of your body? You are seated. Your back is propping your body upright. You can feel your buttocks in contact with your seat. Your limbs in contact with one another. Your skin in contact with your clothing. With the cold air. You can also hear sounds in the background besides my voice. And instead of focusing on me, if you could readjust your focus, to look at the space in between you and me or beyond me. When you try to do that, when you defocus, then what happens is that you get an overview. If you focus on me only, then other things are blocked out. When you defocus, you step back and adjust your focus to the space between you and me, or beyond me and beyond the wall, then you have a different view, you have an overview of things. In meditative terminology, we call that stepping back. When you step back, you get an overview of things. When you step back and get an overview of things, then you can relate things together to see how things are connected with one another. If you are too focused, then you are oblivious of what's happening around you. Of course, it's not always possible to maintain this sort of awareness because you need to be focused in your daily life. You have many things to do. But it's good to step back once in a while to take a rest from being over-focused. And also when you take a walk in the park, at the seaside or in the forest, that's a good place to 
practice this sort of awareness. In fact, the other day, I was taken to one you, one Utama, and it was interesting because the place is so vast. I mean, so much space there. As you walk along the mall, you can actually practice this sort of awareness. You don't focus on anything. You're like walking like a zombie. You're just focusing in the space in between, whatever is between you and in the front. Now, this is a very good way of training our mind from compulsive shopping. <laughs> if you go to the mall, you want to buy a particular item, all right? You just remember that you're going to that particular place to buy the item. While you're going there, don't look left, right, you know, maintain that, <laughs> that sort of objective awareness, unfocused awareness. When you practice coming back to your senses as often as you can, there are many times that you can do this actually, while you are in the toilet, you're having a shower, when you are driving, for example. There are a lot of traffic jams in the Klang Valley. So when you're caught in traffic jams, don't start to get heated up because you're late for something or because of the stupid driver in front you know, doesn't know how to drive. Maintain that sort of open awareness and see what goes on in your mind. And not getting caught up in your thoughts, but coming back to the present moment to be with your senses. This is a good groundwork for you to be able to catch your intentions and your thoughts. When you're able to catch your intentions and your thoughts, then only will you be able to put this criteria for well-spoken speech into practice. Then you can actually process your intentions before you decide to pursue them or to abandon them. In Pali, we call this Sati Sabajanya. Sati is the quality of the mind that is able to look back at what has just happened, be able to catch the intention. And Sabajanya is clear awareness, clearly aware of what's going on in the mind, and also making use of this value system that mindfulness has learned in the past. The job of mindfulness is very important. For example, right now, you are listening to me, and I'm giving you all these acronyms. If you don't make an effort, a willful effort, to remember them, when you come out, get out of this hall, you wouldn't remember. If you cannot remember, how are you going to put that to practice? Correct. So, even clear awareness, sabajanya, depends on sati. If sati didn't do his job in the beginning, sabajanya wouldn't have any reference point. So, the importance of sati cannot be overstressed. It's so important. Now, we're talking about whether we speak the truth all the time. There's one sutta in the Majjhima Nikaya, sutta number 58, is called Abhaya Raja Kumara Sutta. Abhaya the Prince. The sutta about Abhaya, Prince Abhaya. So he was having a conversation with the Buddha, and the Buddha told him that the Tathagata, or the Buddha himself, does not always speak the truth. 
Let me read the whole thing to you so that you can understand it in context. In the case of words that the Tathagata knows to be unfactual, untrue, unbeneficial, unendearing and disagreeable to others, he does not say them. So what is not truthful, what is not beneficial, what is disagreeable, the Buddha does not say. In the case of words that the Tathagata knows to be factual, true, unbeneficial, unendearing and disagreeable, he also does not say. It's factual, it's true, but because it's unbeneficial and also unendearing and disagreeable, he does not say them. In the case of words that the Tathagata knows to be factual and true, beneficial, but unendearing and disagreeable to others. Does he say or not? Something which is factual and true, and is also beneficial, but is unendearing and disagreeable to others. So will he say or not? He has a sense of the proper time of saying. So look at this combination. There's something which is factual and true, and it's beneficial, but people don't like. So he will not simply say, he will look at the appropriateness of the situation, whether the person is ready or not, then he will say. In the case of words that the targeter knows to be unfactual, untrue, unbeneficial, but endearing and agreeable to others, he does not say that. Is untrue and unbeneficial, but people like, also he doesn't say. In the case of words that the Tathagata knows to be factual, true, beneficial, and endearing and agreeable to others, he has a sense of the proper time for saying them. Why is that? Because the Tathagata has compassion for living beings. The message of the Buddha is not always sweet. A lot of times he gives us a lot of bitter medicine. <laughs> There's this story of Magandiya. I don't know whether you've heard of this. It's on the Majimanikaya. Magandiya was a Brahmin and he was a very knowledgeable Brahmin and he had a very beautiful daughter. Beautiful daughter that everybody was going after. So one day he was walking along a path and then he saw the footprint of the Buddha. And the moment he saw the footprint, he recognized that this person is a very special person. He called it the Mahapurisa, the great man. This person is either a Samasambuddha or he's a Chakravati, or has the potential to become a universal monarch. So he tracked the Buddha's footprints and finally found the Buddha. And he, of course, was very honored to meet such a person, such a special great man. And he offered his beautiful daughter to the Buddha. And the Buddha said, I will not even touch her with my toe. 
And the daughter was there, and the daughter heard this, and she got so mad. <laughs> Eventually, she tried to take revenge on the Buddha. That's a long story, I'm not going to go through that. But you see, it's strange that the Buddha would say such a thing, huh? and it caused so much bad karma that this lady harbored and had a grudge for the Buddha. I don't know, maybe there's some other reason which we don't know. But it seems rather contradictory to what is said in the Sutta, where the Buddha says that if it's true, factual, beneficial, but it's not agreeable to people, then he will say it at the right time. I don't know, the commentaries also were speculating, maybe it was not beneficial for her, but it's beneficial for the parents. <laughs> then there's another interesting sutta called the Sutta Sutta. The sutta, it means having heard. It's not double T, but single T. That's found in the Anguttara Book of Force, sutta number 183. Now at that time, the Buddha was staying in the bamboo grove in Rajagaha. Then the Vasakara, a Brahmin who was one of the ministers of the King Bimbisara, approached the Blessed One and on arrival, exchanged courteous greetings with him. Then he said to the Blessed One, I am of the view, Master Gautama, of the opinion that when anyone speaks of what he has seen, saying, thus have I seen. There is no fault in that. When anyone speaks of what he has heard, saying, thus have I heard, there is no fault in that. When anyone speaks of what he has sensed, saying, thus have I sensed, there is no fault in that. When anyone speaks of what he has cognized, saying, thus have I cognized, there is no fault in that. So what he's saying is that through any of your senses, whether you've seen, heard, smelled, tasted, or felt with the body, or cognized with your mind, if you say the truth at any time, then that's not an issue. To him, it's okay. But the Buddha disagreed. The Buddha said, I do not say, Brahmin, that everything that has been seen, smelled, tasted, whatever, or cognized, should be spoken about. Nor do I say that everything that has been seen should not be spoken about. I do not say that everything that has been heard, sensed, cognized should be spoken about, nor do I say that everything that has been cognized should not be spoken about. So the Buddha is not giving you black and white. You know, he's not saying, okay, if I've seen, then I should say. Or if I've seen, I should not say. When, for one who speaks of what has been seen, unskillful mental qualities increase, and skillful mental qualities decrease, then that sort of thing should not be spoken about. But when, for one who speaks of what has been seen, unskillful mental qualities decrease, and skillful mental qualities increase, then that sort of thing should be spoken about. So the criteria is whether it's going to be skillful or not. If you speak about something which is true, 
and yet it's not going to bring about wholesome qualities, then don't say. So wholesome qualities mean also within you and outside of you. If you say something which is very truthful, for example, you heard somebody criticizing another person, you heard A criticizing B, and B was not around. Then later he went to B and said, hey, you know, A said that to you. <laughs> you heard, right? You're telling the truth. But is that going to produce wholesome or unwholesome qualities in the other person? You see, if you did that innocently, that's out of delusion, then you're not committing the offense of divisive speech. If you do that intentionally in order to cause disharmony between A and B, then that is divisive speech. You understand? One is doing it without the intention to cause disharmony. It's just a delusion and absentmindedly, uh, just for gossip's sake. Then there's also another drink star on how one should react when people speak to you with words that are the opposite of well-spoken speech. As you see up there, the qualities of well-spoken speech are the words should be beneficial, it should be truthful, timely, polite, and spoken with metta. Well, what if somebody spoke to you about something which is not beneficial, not truthful, not the right time, not politely, but harshly, and not with metta, but with anger. How are you going to react? So the Buddha actually was admonishing one monk. This monk was somehow very close to the bhikkhunis. So when some people criticize the bhikkhunis, he would be very defensive and sometimes would get a bit violent. So because of this, the Buddha admonished him. He says, whatever you know, people say, whether it's a well-spoken speech or the opposite of well-spoken speech, one should not react in that way, but one should have metta. So, he says, monks, some might speak to you using speech that is timely or untimely. Some might speak to you according to truth or falsely. Some might speak to you gently or harshly. Some might speak to you with a good motive of the harmful motive. Some might speak to you with a loving heart or with hostility. On all occasions, monks, you should train yourself thus. Neither shall our minds be affected by this, nor for this matter shall we give vent to evil words, but we shall remain full of concern and pity, with a mind of love, and we shall not give in to hatred. On the contrary, we shall live projecting thoughts of universal love to that very person, making him as well as the whole world the object of our thoughts of universal love, thoughts that have grown great, exalted, and measureless. We shall dwell radiating these thoughts which are void of hostility and ill will. It is in this way, monks, that you should train yourself. So this is a very high standard <laughs> meant for monks, but you all can try your best and see how you fare.
Now, to help you to respond in a positive way and to encourage you to observe this right speech. There's one sutta in the Anguttara Nikaya called the Dutcharita Vipaka Sutta, AN 8.40, where the Buddha talks about the ten causes of unwholesome actions. And he will say, if you committed any of them, then what could be the possible effects? So with respect to speech, the Buddha says, if one constantly or one is in the habit of telling lies, he says, this karma can conduce to being reborn in the lower realms. And he says, the minimum result or effect of telling lies, if one is not reborn in the lower realms, is that if one becomes a human being, then you will be constantly exposed to lies. People will tell you a lot of lies. They will tell you the truth. That's your karma. Because you were telling a lot of lies to people, then people will tell lies to you again. And if you engage in divisive speech to create this harmony upon people who are already harmonious, then again, you create the potential for rebirth in the lower realm. And if you are lucky, you don't get rebirth in the lower realm, you come back as a human being, the minimum result would be people will try to divide you from your friends. So this is a law of karma. You reap what you sow. If you talk harshly, the same thing. If you are a very harsh person, you don't know how to control your speech, that is also creating the potential to be reborn in lower realms. And if that doesn't happen, you come back as a human being, then you will always be exposed to unpleasant sounds. So you live near to a construction site. Yeah, you know it in the past. <laughs> You have a house and then suddenly the government decides to build LRT over there. (laughs) The last one is if you engage in frivolous talk, then what's going to happen is if you don't get reborn in the lower realms and you come back as a human being, then you will be exposed to frivolous talk. People will talk all sorts of nonsense and even though you don't like them, you have to sort of bear with them. This brings me to a concluding sutta about four types of practices. It's in uh, Anguttara Nikaya, Book of Force, sutta number 164. And it says, Monks, there are four modes of practice. Which four? Intolerant practice, tolerant practice, self-controlled practice, and even practice. Okay, what are the four? Intolerant, tolerant, self-controlled, and even. Okay, remember? No acronym for you this time. What is intolerant practice? There is a case where a certain individual, when insulted, returns the insult. When abused, returns the abuse. 
when bickered with bickers in return. This is called intolerant practice. Which means that if you react to somebody scolding you by scolding back that person, or if you, somebody is angry with you, you react with anger, then this is intolerant practice. There's one yogi who told me, you know, I have no problems with people who are nice to me, you know, but when people say rude things to me, I can't help but being rude to them. <laughs> so, I mean, if you're a yogi, you're supposed to be different from normal people. In the sense, you have more self-control over your mind and your actions. And what is tolerant practice? That's the opposite. When insulted, one doesn't return the insult. When abused, one doesn't return the abuse. When somebody quarrels with him, he or she also doesn't quarrel back. But you can all do all these things only when you have mindfulness. Correct. If you don't have mindfulness and you react certainly, you are not even aware that anger has a reason, how are you going to restrain yourself? So easy. Now another antidote for angry people is to practice metta. Why? Because people with an angry temperament very picky and tend to look at the faults of others, faults of situations, look at the negative side of things. That's why they have such an angry temperament because they don't like a lot of things. So this is a habitual tendency. It's just like that. Some people are just born like that. And they are born like that because of past habits. In the past, they have been cultivating this and not trying to deprogram their minds. So a good way of countering this tendency to be angry, to be hot-tempered, to be quick-tempered, is to practice metta. And you practice metta is the opposite of anger. Anger always looks at the faults of others, looks at the bad side of things. But metta, on the other hand, is looking at the good side of things, wishing that beings, all beings, are well and happy. So that's why when you practice a lot of metta, then you reprogram the mind. So the mind, instead of looking at uh, faults, then the mind will be looking at how people can be well and happy. And so this is a very good way of doing it. Many years ago, when I was still studying with Saro Pandita, there was more than 30 years ago, there was one yogi who finished his course in Vipassana, according to the Mahasi tradition. Then at that time, he wanted to continue meditation, so Saru Pandita asked him to do Samatha practice, Metta. And he was someone with an angry temperament. And later he came to ask the Sayadaw, he said, Sayadaw, why didn't you teach me Metta earlier? Because he found it so helpful, and it changed his life and his relationship with other people. Because he became somebody who is more forgiving, more understanding, more accepting. So, one way is to do metta. Another way is actually to practice mindfulness. 
Metta helps to reprogram your mind. Mindfulness helps you to catch your anger before it catches you. You can catch your anger before it catches you, but you see, if you practice metta, the tendency of anger arising will be less. But sometimes it does arise. When it does arise, then you have to make use of mindfulness to be able to catch it before you explode. So these two are important. Okay, let's go on to the next practice. First is intolerant, second is tolerant, and the third one is self-controlled practice. Oh, this one is not easy. This is not easy, but it's in the gradual training template for monks and nuns. This is step number two. The first step is sila, perfecting your precepts. Step number two seems like a big jump. Step number two is about guarding the doors of your senses. When you see something with the eye, you don't grasp at its signs and features. When you hear something through the ears, you don't grasp at the signs and the features. Which means to say that it's actually being very mindful. <laughs> you don't allow the mind to start to proliferate on what you see, hear, smell, taste, feel with the body, or even what your mind thinks. Actually, it's a very high degree of mindfulness to be able to do that. I don't know why the Buddha put it as step number two. You know, it's like a big jump from taking care of the precepts to watching the mind. But actually, it's not really a very high state in the sense that when you practice restraint of the senses or guarding the door of the senses, this does not really give you wisdom yet. It only helps to restrain your mind. When you go on an intensive retreat, usually you are told not to be a busybody, mind your own business, draw your eyes and just see about two, three meters in front of you. When you are in that mode, then you program your mind not to proliferate. Whatever you see, you know you're seeing only. You don't bother what you see and make a story out of it. But I don't suppose this is something easy for lay people uh, because you are all engaged in a lot of activities and a lot of worldly conventional matters. You have to think, you have to conceptualize. So it's not so easy, but it's still possible. Like I said, when you go to a mall to buy a particular item, just keep in mind that particular item, the store that you want to go to, and then when you walk through the mall, practice open awareness. Just maintain an unfocused gaze. So this is called self-control practice. The next one is called even practice. There's a case where a monk doesn't acquiesce to a risen thought of sensuality. He abandons it, destroys it, dispels it, knows it, demolishes it, wipes it out of existence. It sounds very drastic. <laughs> the Buddha is using very tough words for this. Actually, what it means is that the monk does not entertain any thoughts connected with greed, hatred, or delusion. He doesn't give in to a thought of 
Sensuality means desire for pleasures of the senses. He doesn't give in to the thought of ill will. He doesn't give in to the thought of harmfulness. He doesn't give in to any arisen illful, evil, unskillful qualities. He abandons them, dispels them, knows them, demolishes them, wipes them out of existence. So this one sounds like it's more for yogi. If you are doing an intensive retreat, then you can go to that mode. So, in this sutta, what is relevant to most of you would just be the first two modes of practice. First is intolerant and tolerant. So if you are an intolerant person, you react in the way people treat you, then that's the first sort of practice. On the other hand, you don't react that way, you respond in a positive way to the way people treat you in a negative way. Then there will be the second sort of practice. So I hope that you will be able to remember these acronyms and have enough mindfulness to be able to catch your mind, your initial thoughts, so that you can put them into practice and improve your relationships with well-spoken speech. Okay, let me stop here and open to the floor for questions. This is a very brief question. You mentioned about Sati Sampas Jana. The seventh noble path is uh, the Sati, uh, Samasati, uh, which is most kind of explanation is mindfulness. But in reality, as you explain it, I thought myself, Sati is more like remembering, recalling things they have done and said a long time ago. Whereas the word mindfulness is more appropriate for Sampajana, which means clear awareness. Would, would that be appropriate? <laughs> I purposely use the word clear awareness for Sambhajanya because I want to distinguish the usage of the word awareness. Now the word awareness in the English language is something very general. So general that it could also be used synonymously with consciousness. There's no public consciousness, there's no public awareness, they are synonyms. So I explained sati or mindfulness as a special sort of awareness, awareness of a past object. The word mindfulness is being used nowadays since many years ago, has been equated to present moment awareness. Right now, there's a popular understanding all over, everywhere. In fact, in the circular application of mindfulness, that's the most popular definition. Be in the present. But actually, you're not in the present. You're in the immediate past. Because if you realize that you're angry, if you realize that you are thinking, the anger arose first, and then you are aware of it. The thought arose first, and then you knew immediately after that. So it's awareness, but it's a special sort of awareness. In conventional language, we say present moment awareness. This is for the senses, because the senses can only take objects in the present moment. You can only see, hear, smell, taste, feel things with the body which are right here and now. Thank you, Ayasma. I think Abrari has a question. Good morning, Bhante. A few years ago, I had an opportunity to uh, transport a monk from one place to another place. So in a car ride, I asked him, 
in the 227 Vinaya rules, which one is the most difficult to keep. And he told me the right species is the most difficult to, to keep. So my question to Bante, do you agree with him? That right species is the most difficult? No, I don't. I mean, that right species is most difficult for businessmen. Monks ah. uh, have to do business, so it's okay. Bante, how is your bar test, B-A-R-R, relation to this well-spoken speech? Yeah, very closely related, they actually overlap. Yeah, because B stands for beneficial, it's so here, bad and tip me, that's really beneficial. And A stands for appropriate, and appropriate can also go into timely. Is it the right time? Is it the right circumstances? Is it the right expression? Is it the right mood? Okay, A, and uh, relevance can also be under timely, whether it's relevant to you or not. And R is realistic in the sense that, is it truthful? Is it factual? So there's some overlap. So sometimes when I talk about the bar test, I also put in this bet and tip me to elaborate on the bar. Anyone else? Mm -hmm. Morning. I have a more layperson question regarding well-spoken speech. This is regards to maybe a personal experience or whatever in everyday life. If you have experience with a certain individual or a group of people or a situation that is bad, basically maybe the person is a cheat or not very skillful in his action, and you come across another person who is going to engage in in that particular individual. Should you, as a person practicing well speech, refrain from advising the person that say, hey, you know, this person may lead you into trouble, bad speech, or let him experience himself because his experience may be different from you. So that is the dilemma quite a fair bit of us may have in our everyday endeavors. Let's take a show of hands. How many people think that they should tell? Hands up. How many people think that they should not tell? Hands up. Oh, a lot of people sitting on a fence. Huh? Don't <laughs> <know> comment. <laughs> if you stay quiet, that means you're not telling. Either la. <laughs> you tell it, you don't tell. Right? <laughs> sometimes yes, sometimes no. La. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, it depends on the situation. What is your motive? Is your motive because you have a grudge against that particular person or is it because of the welfare and benefit of the employer to be. Right? 